This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 2nd, 2005. Air France flight 358, an Airbus A340, is nearing the completion of its flight from Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport to Toronto's Pearson International Airport. The weather in Toronto is stormy, and all 309 people on board are experiencing strong turbulence. The plane touches down, but the passenger's relief quickly turns to panic as the plane slides off the end of the runway, crashes into a ravine, and catches fire. Passengers on board are frantically trying to escape despite some exits being inaccessible due to the fire. March 20th, 2009. Emirates Flight 407, an Airbus A340 with 275 people on board, is on a takeoff roll in Melbourne, Australia, bound for Dubai. The plane reaches 168 miles per hour, and the captain calls for the first officer to rotate the plane to take off. However, the plane's nose pitches up, the tail strikes the runway, and the plane fails to become airborne. With only 3,400 feet of runway left, the captain takes control, pushes the throttle to maximum in an effort to get the plane off the ground. Does he have enough space to take off? And what do these two incidents have in common? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. That was was my dog dropping his bone. (laughs) And and Chris's dog, Booger. Hello, Booger. How's it going? (laughs) What perfect timing. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I got a new bone. I'm going to drop it on the floor. (laughs) As always, I want to remind everyone to follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, unfortunately, there's no booger on those social media accounts. We just post uh, images and supplemental information for the incidents that we talk about on this uh, show. Maybe I'll get an uh, an airplane or captain's uniform for booger, and then we have a reason to post booger. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely do that. Uh, so I just want to remind everyone that uh, neither of us are pilots. Uh, I'm just an enthusiast uh, for aviation, and I have a fascination about incidents when things go wrong, just because uh, I think it's really fascinating. Air travel is, of course, super safe. So I'm always curious to know what happens when something actually does go wrong. And yeah. uh, I've roped Chris in to listen to me rant <laughs> every week. <laughs> and I guess everyone listening also has the same fascination. <laughs> I guess that's true. I, I guess they don't get to talk back. So uh, I always think about it's just you being here. They can on social media. That's why they should follow at Black Box Down Pod. What a great plug. That's a, that's a great idea. So before we, we dig into this episode, I'm going to ask you a question, Chris. There's no reason you should know this. I'm just mm-hmm. curious. I, I just want to know. Can you name some different passenger planes that have four engines? I assume those are all the big, big ones. So like big Airbus one, uh, mm-hmm. 7, 757. Mm-hmm. All the big ones. Uh, the I, big I, ones. I, I am so bad with yeah. names, though. Well, you're right about that. It's the big ones, right? I yeah. think. Typically, the four-engine planes are the ones that are easiest to recognize because there's so few of them. They're so big, and it's obvious they have four engines. Mm-hmm. So the ones we've talked about in the past are the Boeing 747, mm-hmm. which is the one, if you look at it, it's got four engines, of course, and it's got like a little hump at the front. Uh, it's like double-decker only at the front of the plane. Yeah. Uh, very iconic plane. And the other one that I think people normally think about is the Airbus A380, which is the one that's like double-decker across the entire plane. It's massive plane. Yeah. It's a big chonky. The chonk big, one is thick. Real big. Uh, and we've covered incidents with both of these planes before. So the thing that these two incidents we're talking about today, what they have in common is they're both incidents involving the Airbus A340. Oh. This is another four-engine plane, but I feel like this four-engine plane is not as well known as the 747 and the Airbus A380. Specifically for people who might be in the United States, I don't believe any U.S. carrier flies the A340. In all the flying I've ever done, I think I've only ever seen one once. Wow. 
I was walking through LAX one time and, you know, they have a bunch of windows where you can see the planes parked out at the gates. I remember I was walking down uh, the mm-hmm. terminal and I was like, oh, that's an A340. I think I even took a photo of it with my phone. It's like, I've never seen one before. Yeah. It was a Lufthansa A340 that was parked there at LAX. I just looked it up. It's a very like, I thought it was going to be uh, thicker or fatter. It's pretty long and skinny. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Like, if you compare it to the other four-engine passenger planes you typically see, it doesn't seem as big as those. Yeah. And there are actually not very many incidents involving this plane. Uh, it's got a pretty good safety record. And uh, since it was introduced in 1991, there's only been six incidents that result in hull loss, like where mm. they have to totally scrap the plane and ride it off. One of them is Air France 358, by the way. So that's why I was, I was curious. Like, this is a plane that we're not, we're, we probably had no reason to talk about. So I asked our producer, Dennis, I was like, let's look into the A340. I want to talk about this plane a little bit. And uh, so like, these are the incidents we came up with. And they're good incidents to talk about. I don't want to like discount what we're about to talk about today, but I just wanted to to try to find something to talk about with the A340. Because like I said, barring any tragedy, this is probably the only episode we'll ever have that discusses an Airbus A340. So all you Airbus A340 fans, sorry. This is it. <laughs> this, is, this is it. This is all you're going to get. Okay. So we're going to start off by talking about Air France Flight 358. It's the first one I mentioned. Mm-hmm. It was a regularly scheduled passenger flight. And it was flying from Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris to Toronto Pearson International Airport in Ontario, Canada on August 2nd, 2005. The flight was crewed by Captain Alain Rosset, who was 57 years old with 15,411 flight hours. And First Officer Frederick Naud, who was 42, who had 4,834 flight hours. And like I said, the plane was an Airbus A340 with 28,426 flight hours. And there were 10 other crew members and 297 passengers on board. The flight took off from Paris at 11.53 a.m. Universal Time and made its way to Toronto. Like I typically say, it was uneventful while it was cruising. But at 2.44 p.m. Universal Time, the crew tried to check the weather forecast for Toronto. And uh, the weather forecast is called the TAF. It stands for Terminal Aerodrome Forecast. And it's just a weather forecast for an airport. So if you hear me say TAF, it's the weather forecast for the airport. Okay. But when they tried to check it, the message came back as TAF NIL, which basically means there's no TAF available, which not odd or unusual. But the reason why they didn't get one is because they requested a shortened version of the TAF and the airport only had a long version available. Oh. However, they were able to receive the METAR for the airport. And that's basically the current weather information at the airport that's updated every hour. So it's not a forecast. It's just current weather information for that hour. Okay. And it showed that the weather was unremarkable at that time. And they were landing within that hour? Uh, No, they were still a couple hours out. Okay. So at about 4.08 p.m. Universal Time, uh, still a few hours from arrival, they received another METAR for the Toronto airport, and it showed good cloud ceiling, good visibility, light winds. Uh, And then at 5.50 p.m. Universal Time, uh, the crew sent a message to Air France Operations letting them know they expect to arrive at about 7.39 p.m. Universal Time. So this is almost five hours after that first TAF report I talked about. Okay. They know they're going to land at about 7.39 Universal Time, which is about 3.39 p.m. Toronto Time. And uh, they receive a message back from uh, Air France Operations, letting them know what parking gate they could expect. You know, typical stuff. Mm-hmm. However, the message did not let the crew know there was a red alert in effect at the Toronto airport, just because it was not part of the procedure and it was not a requirement for operations to inform the crew about that. A red alert for? A red alert uh, with an airport is when a certain number of lightning strikes occur within a specified radius of the airport, uh, there's a red alert issued. Okay. If you fly in and out of the Austin airport like we do, you may experience these every now and then. It's just basically for ground crew safety. They don't want anybody out on the ground or any equipment to get struck by lightning. So they have to make sure that there's no lightning in the area so that it's safe for uh, ground crew to come in and out. Okay. 
If you've had a flight delay in Austin because of a thunderstorm, it's probably because of this. So about an hour later, the crew checked the weather for some surrounding airports. Uh, The weather for Niagara showed thunderstorms to the northwest moving southeast. And the weather for Ottawa and Cleveland did not show any thunderstorm activity. And Toronto's just north of Niagara, and Cleveland's about 290 miles southwest of Toronto, and Ottawa's about 280 miles northeast of Toronto. So they're just checking what the other airports are, and you know they're doing some calculations and determining like if they need to divert, just in case the weather gets bad, right? Mm-hmm. So they figure out that if they wanted to divert to Ottawa, they would only have about 14 minutes of holding time at Toronto. So basically, it's like, if they come into Toronto and they have to hold more than 14 minutes, they're going to need to divert. Okay. Otherwise, they're not going to have enough fuel to reach Ottawa. Gotcha. So at 7.03 p.m. Universal Time, which is 3.03 Toronto Time, the crew made contact with Toronto Area Air Traffic Control and asked about the weather in Toronto. And they were told they would be kept informed about the weather. And then 10 minutes later, there was a conversation between the crew and the air traffic control again about the weather. Mm -hmm. And the crew were then vectored to avoid weather. So basically, they're being routed around severe weather. Okay. And the METAR for Toronto showed thunderstorms and heavy rain. So now they know there's bad weather and they're kind of trying to fly around it. And they're considering if they need to divert what their options are for other airports. The crew then, you know, they're getting ready for this. They brief themselves on the wind shear procedure. And if a wind shear occurred on their final, they would go around. So basically, if there's a crazy wind shear at the last second, they're not going to land. They're just going to go around and try land again. And a wind shear is like unexpected wind, right? Like a big gust. A big gust of wind, right? Yeah. So at 3.22 p.m. Toronto time, the crew was told they could expect clearance and to start approaching the airport at 3.50 p.m., which would be pretty close to the time limit they had to hold over Toronto. So they were cutting it real close at this point. They knew like, okay, we're, we're going to be told to land, but we don't really have much time beyond this. So they get like one shot of like landing. Yeah. Basically, they might get a second one. Okay. Uh, but of course, like if they know they're not going to divert, they can keep trying to land, but then they have no backup options. They have to land at Toronto at that point. Yeah. So the crew started to prepare for possibly declaring minimum fuel. They also briefed on the ILS approach, but they did not include runway length a missed approach procedure, nor did they make calculations for a wet runway. So these are all things that they normally have to go over and consider when they're coming in to land. But they didn't do it? They did not do those things. They didn't include runway length, they did not include missed approach procedure, and they did not calculate wet runway, despite the fact it was obviously raining and there was a thunderstorm going on. And why, I guess we'll get into it, but... mm. They should have. That's all I can say at this point. At 3.40 p.m., the aircraft started to be directed towards the airport and Air France 358 was third in line to land. They lined up for runway 24 left, and the last reported winds were at 230 at 7 knots. But the wind instruments were knocked offline due to the thunderstorm. Okay, and so the wind instruments on the airport, not the plane? Correct, yeah, you're right. Thank you, I should have have, uh, clarified that. The instruments on the ground. The aircraft that landed in front of them reported poor braking action on the runway, probably because it was wet. Mm -hmm. So the crew sets their auto brake to medium. As uh, they were on final, the aircraft's navigation display showed a 70 to 90 degree crosswind of 15 to 20 knots. So basically, winds coming in almost directly perpendicular to the runway between 15 and 20 knots of speed. Okay, so it's basically pushing them to the side pretty hard. Correct. And just for reference, that's between about 17 and 23 miles an hour of a crosswind. What are hurricane winds, just for bigger context? I think hurricane winds are typically... uh, I believe the minimum is around somewhere around 80 miles an hour, but typically you think of them around 100 or so. Yeah, I just looked it up. Category 1, 74 to 95, and then mm-hmm. pretty much all the other ones kind of go above 100. So Yeah. I mean, 20, that's a strong wind, right? Like if you're at home and you get a 20 mile an hour wind, I mean, you, you notice that. It's not like you yeah. sit in your house and don't know that. 
any greater than that, and you start to worry about stuff outside your house getting knocked down, right? Yeah. So they were on a stable approach, but when they were a few hundred feet above the ground, the captain felt the aircraft sink, uh, and he increased engine thrust. And at the same time, the wind changed from a 90-degree crosswind to a 10-knot tailwind. Oh. Yeah, and as we've talked about before, a tailwind is not good when you're taking off or landing. Uh, planes always try to land into the wind. So um, tailwind, not good. A tailwind will extend the amount of time you need to stop. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not ideal. Longer runway, right? Right. So you can tell they've already got a couple things lined up against them. Poor braking action because of their wet runway, and now the wind has switched to a tailwind, which are not good. You, like You have multiple factors lining up working against mm-hmm. you here. So they crossed the runway threshold at 40 feet above the glide slope. So on top of all this, they're coming in a little high. Oh. At 40 feet above the runway, the captain started his flare and he leveled out at 25 feet above the runway. The crew started pulling back on the thrust as the plane climbed up to 50 feet and set the thrust to idle when they were about 20 feet above the runway. The aircraft touched down at about 4.01 p.m. Uh, they were about 3,800 feet down the 9,000-foot runway. So they touched down far down the runway. So if they land at that point, um, there's only about 5,200 feet in front of them for them to stop. Wait, so how far down? They have 5,200 left, and how far? They're... They touched down 3,800 feet down a 9,000-foot runway. Oh. Almost halfway down the runway. Dang, yeah. So that's, again, not good either. <laughs> uh-huh. The first officer did not make the call-outs to reverse thrust, and the reverse thrust was engaged later than usual. What? Again, see, all these little things are adding up. So as a result of all this, the plane was not able to stop quick enough, and it overran the end of the runway uh, at a speed of about 80 knots, and it came to rest in a creek ravine. Oh, man. So just for reference, 80 knots is about 92 miles an hour. So think about that. It came off the runway at 92 miles an hour, and then crashed into a ravine. And when I say that, like, it's a pretty severe drop from the end of that runway into that ravine. Uh, I think they estimate it's about 50 feet down. Oh, my God. That's a really far drop. It's a really, really big drop. So evacuation started as soon as they came to rest because there was a fire observed outside the left side of the plane, and smoke started to fill the cabin. And how far is the ravine from the end of the runway? So after it uh, slid off the end of the runway, it went another 300 meters, which is close to 1,000 feet, and then that's when it slid into the ravine. Mm. So um, 300 meters slash 1,000 feet beyond the end of the runway is is where they crashed into the ravine. The first officer made his way to the back of the plane and checked to make sure everyone was evacuated, and he was the last to leave the aircraft. Believe it or not, everyone made it out of the plane before the fuselage was engulfed in flames. Yay! (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. There were no fatalities. But there were 21 minor injuries and 12 major injuries. The aftermath of this fire, like the plane is left charred. It's unrecognizable. Uh, everything on board just burned. It's, it looks horrific. And what's strange about this one is, I don't know if you've ever flown. Yeah, I know you have, actually. You've flown in and out of the Toronto airport. Mm-hmm. There's a major highway that goes right there along that runway. So people were driving and could see this plane slide off the end of the runway and uh, crash into the ravine. Oh. It actually caused a traffic jam because people stopped their cars to see what was happening. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it did. It's like at 4.01 p.m. You know, it's getting close to rush hour. People are getting off of work. So the investigation was conducted by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, and it was clear to them that this accident was caused by the decisions of the crew and the weather conditions. Mm-hmm. And they made a few findings here. The crew conducted an approach and landing in the midst of a severe and rapidly changing thunderstorm. There were no procedures within Air France related to distance required from thunderstorms during approaches and landing, nor were these required by regulations. So 
there's no procedures related to distance required from thunderstorms. Maybe there should be, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After the autopilot and auto thrust systems were disengaged, the pilot flying increased the thrust in reaction to a decrease in airspeed and a perception that the aircraft was sinking. The power increase contributed to an increase in aircraft energy and the aircraft deviated above the glide path. You heard me when I was talking about they were coming in and approaching. Like they they flared up a little too much. Like they started increasing their altitude for a little bit uh, as they yeah. were coming into land. Overcorrected kind of thing. At about 300 feet above ground level, the surface wind began to shift from a headwind component to a 10-knot tailwind component, increasing the aircraft's ground speed and effectively changing the flight path. The aircraft crossed the runway threshold about 40 feet above the normal threshold crossing height. So again, they were coming in high and the wind changed, uh, which did not work in their favor. When the aircraft was near the threshold, the crew members became committed to the landing and believed their go-around option no longer existed. So again, that, that's one of the things I mentioned earlier. They didn't talk about the go-around procedure. Normally when a plane's coming in, they're going to have a go-around procedure set. Like if the landing doesn't work out, we're going to punch it and we're going to go up to a certain altitude and we're going to circle and we're going to try again. They were just like, we're landing. They were just committed to the landing uh, with no go-around option. The touchdown was long because the aircraft floated due to its excess speed over the threshold and because the intense rain and lightning made visual contact with the runway very difficult. When they say the touchdown was long, it just means like, they landed far down the runway. We talked before about when it's too late to not take off yeah. the plane, basically when it's in the air. Is there a point where it's too late to not land? Can you put your wheels down and then pick back up? Or like, what is... Absolutely, you can do that. And I've been on planes that do that, that have done that, I should say. I've been on a flight where the plane landed in Chicago at O'Hare. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we were on the runway and then you hear the engines just, you know, roar back up and then you take uh -huh. off again. That can absolutely happen and that does happen, uh, which is not something you should be, worry about necessarily. It's not a common thing, but it's not anything to necessarily worry about typically. Just something's not right. Like a wind changed or something. And then right. the, yeah. Selection of the thrust reversers was delayed as was the subsequent application of full reverse thrust. The pilot not flying did not make the standard callouts concerning the spoilers and thrust reversers during the landing roll. This further contributed to the delay in the pilot flying, selecting the thrust reversers. I think that they were rolling on the runway for 17 seconds before the thrust reversers were uh, activated. When they're like, that's something that should be activated immediately. Especially if you're that far ahead the, of the runway. Like, why? Why? They just didn't do it. I mean, uh, there, there's really no good reason I can give you. They're just distracted? They, yeah, they were worried about it. They failed to call it out and they failed to do it. It's like one of the major things that they need in order to try to slow the plane down and they didn't do it. Yeah, that's just the reverse thrust. It's just the basically the plane pushing the opposite direction. <laughs> exactly, right. It, it reverses the thrust. So instead of the force being put behind the plane to propel it forward, it redirects it forward to kind of slow it down. And that's that whenever you land, it's that... that Right? Yeah, you like that roaring sound that you hear pick up uh, when you land. And like I've said before, if you look out the window, if you got a window seat, if you look out at the engine, you'll see them deploy. They are on the engine themselves. Oh, in my head, it was always the same thrusters as before, just turn the other direction. They're different? No. So there's a couple of different ways it can work, but a common way is you'll see almost like the engine cowling open up and then uh, that's basically how the thrust is reversed. You'll see like panels open up on the engine itself. And that's what's redirecting the thrust. Okay. Because the thrust, the way the engine works, it's still trying to push the thrust back towards the rear of the plane. And those reverses just insert themselves into the process and redirect that force forward. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense now. 
So it's the same thing. It's just uh, the propellers or anything aren't spinning a different direction. They're just pushing it out a different direction. The thrust that's coming out is what's getting redirected to a different direction. As far as the turbine and the engine, like that's all still spinning in the same direction. Because the runway was contaminated by water, the strength of the crosswind at touchdown exceeded the landing limits of the aircraft. So they were actually really close to the limits of this aircraft when they touched down. The wind was so strong. Mm-hmm. And I guess technically they, they could have landed, but really it was a very dangerous situation. Even if they had done the reverse thrusters immediately, they still might have had this issue? Uh, maybe. It's it's really difficult to say. They landed so far down uh, the mm-hmm. runway. It's possible that uh, deploying the thrust reverse immediately could have helped them, but I can't say for certain. Yeah. The crew did not calculate the landing distance required for runway 24 left, despite aviation routine weather reports calling for thunderstorms. And the crew was not aware of the margin of error. So they just didn't do all of their calculations properly to land. And that's a really big deal. If you remember, we talked about uh, Qantas Flight 32, which was the A380 that had an engine explode and had to land back at Singapore. That's one Mm -hmm. of the things they did over and over. They kept calculating their landing distance to make sure there was enough runway for them to touch down on. Yeah. Because they were worried about that. Is that not required? Oh, it's absolutely required. Uh, They just didn't do it properly. Oh. Did they have a history of doing that? Or is this just because they were nervous about the storm? It just makes no sense. Yeah, they were just distracted with the storm and uh, everything was going on. I think they were probably also partially distracted by the fact that they were nearing their minimums on fuel and were thinking about having to go to another airport potentially. Uh, Which Mm -hmm. also, you know, like that's a whole deal. They know if they go to another airport, then... The airline has to worry about getting the passengers from that airport to actually getting them to Toronto. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like all these other things in the back of their mind that they're maybe thinking about as well. Yeah. And then this uh, this one here we've kind of talked about before. The topography at the end of the runway and the area beyond the end of runway 24 left contributed to aircraft damage and injuries to crew and passengers. So it's just saying, hey, there's a ravine at the end of the runway. That's bad topography, right? If something goes wrong. Yeah. In fact, there was another accident back in the 70s, kind of similar on this runway where a plane ran off the end of the runway into the ravine. And after that accident in the 70s, uh, it was recommended that something be done about that ravine, that they fill it in or or do something because if a plane overruns again, it has the potential to go into the ravine. Yeah. And, and you know, if you remember, we talked about when we did our Southwest Airlines episode, we talked mm-hmm. about how there are systems called EMAS, uh, Engineer Material Arrestor Systems, which you could put at the end of a runway to help slow down a plane yeah. that overruns uh, a runway. I was going to ask about that next. Do they have... It was is is it's just stuff that basically just like it tears the plane apart, but it stops the plane. Yeah, it's like the the best analogy I can give. It's like it's like trying to ride a bike through wet concrete. Mm-hmm. So there were some safety actions that were taken by the time the final report was published. At the time of the accident, there was no procedure in place with respect to the use of rain repellent, with the exception of checking the fluid quantity and the pressure during pre-flight preparation of the cockpit. A new procedure and additional information was added to the Air France Operations Manual on the first of September two thousand five indicating that the system could be used in moderate to heavy rain. And in addition, a technical note was issued to all pilots on the 15th of September 2005, indicating there was no restriction with respect to the use of rain repellent in any flight condition. Basically, it's like, you, you know what Rain-X is, right? It's like a liquid you could put on your windshield or your car, like yeah. makes the water yeah. beautiful. It's basically the same thing. There's a button in the cockpit that pilots can hit to uh, deploy a similar thing on their windshields to let them see a little better. That's cool. Uh, Air France station managers have the responsibility to alert flight crews of red alerts. So, again, going back to what we said earlier, in this incident, the operations did not tell the crew about the red alert because they didn't have to. Now it's standard that they have to tell them about that kind of thing. Okay. Following the accident, Air France amended the policy that states that only the captain can call for a missed approach. Either pilot can now make that call. That's good. 
Yeah. So now if the first officer thinks things are bad, they can also call for a missed approach and do a go around. So the Transportation Safety Board of Canada found that the ends of some runways were below the accepted international standards, even though they met current Canadian standards. And they suggested that all runways have a 300 meter safety area on both ends or a means of stopping the aircraft that provides an equivalent level of safety, which is the EMAS we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they, the airport and the Transportation Safety Board, they acknowledged that this runway could be better and uh, they made suggestions to go ahead and improve it so this kind of thing doesn't happen again. We all shop online and we've all seen that promo code feel taunt us at checkout. You know, you try different things. never You can never crack the code. But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey supports over 30,000 stores online. They range from sites that have tech and gaming products to popular fashion brands, even food delivery, you name it. They probably got support for it. So just think about it. Imagine you're shopping one of your favorite sites and when you check out, the Honey button drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons. You wait a few seconds as Honey searches for coupons. It can find for that site. And if Honey finds a working coupon, you just watch the price drop. It's super easy to use. I installed it. It's super quick. Just a little button in my browser. And it just sits there. You don't even notice it until it's time to check out. And it just pops up on my browser and it tells me how much money I can save on any given site. I, I, sometimes I forget that it's there and it just pops up and uh, I'm saving money doing absolutely nothing. Honey has found it's over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free and installs in a few seconds. And by getting it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. We've got a very different kind of sponsor this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure. You never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. And when I say this something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Here recently, he's had a couple of great episodes. He has one with Stephen Hassan, uh, who goes over what it takes to get someone to uh, realize QAnon is almost like a cult, right? And like how to help people wake up and get out of that kind of thing. He's also got an episode with Steve Madden, who you may uh, recognize as being a, a fashion brand, uh, and talks about uh, his experience in that industry. Really interesting stuff. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit here. We're going to switch over to Emirates Flight 407. Okay. Uh, another A340, that's a, the common thread between these two incidents. But this is a, an incident that happens on takeoff, not on landing. So Emirates Flight 407 was a passenger flight from Melbourne to Dubai and happened on March 20th, 2009. Uh, the captain of this flight had 8,195 flying hours and the first officer had 8,316 flying hours. The aircraft used, again, was an Airbus A340. The hours for this plane were not included in the final report. There were 16 other crew members and 257 passengers aboard this flight. So the flight was scheduled to depart Melbourne at 10.25 p.m. Melbourne time. In preparation for the flight, the crew used the electronic flight bag laptop to calculate the takeoff performance needed. 
uh, and safety input variable. So we talked about the computer before. Like again, going back to Qantas Flight 32, they used the laptop to determine how much runway they needed to land. You know, they they put in a bunch of variables, and you know, and in this case for the takeoff performance, some of the variables they need to think about are wind speed and direction, air temperature, altimeter settings, takeoff weight, flap configuration, runway surface conditions, and the aircraft center of gravity. So a lot of these are things that we've talked about before mm-hmm. in different episodes. So the crew completed all their preparation. They pushed back from the gate at 10.18 p.m., which is seven minutes ahead of schedule. You know, if you're a passenger, you like that. You, you know you're not late. Yeah. Uh, 12 minutes later, the flight was cleared for takeoff on runway 16. Thrust was set for takeoff, and the aircraft began rolling down the runway. When the plane reached the calculated rotation speed, the captain called rotate, and the first officer pulled back on the stick, but the nose did not rise. The captain called out again to rotate, and the first officer pulled back even more. The nose began to rise a little bit, but the aircraft did not lift off from the runway. The captain selected the takeoff go-around thrust on the thrust levers, and the engines immediately responded, and the plane accelerated off the runway over a cleared grass area. The plane took off three seconds later, but it struck some strobe lights for runway 34 and several antenna, which disabled ILS for runway 16. An automated message in the cockpit and a radio call from air traffic control alerted the crew they had a tail strike. Uh, and they decided ah. to return to Melbourne to assess the damages. So uh, if you remember, a tail strike is like when the plane tries to take off, but it can't, and the back of the plane hits the runway. Okay, yeah. So almost like, almost, <laughs> I guess try to think of a car analogy when you're uh, going down a, a dip in a road and your back of your car hits. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hate that's an awful sound. Yeah. So yeah, they, they basically were accelerating down the runway, pulled back to take off. The plane didn't take off. It kind of pitched up, but it didn't get airborne. Uh, and then they had mm-hmm. to just gun it. You know, they just... Gave it more throttle, gave it more thrust, and uh, they were actually able to take off, but they hit some of the stuff at the end of the runway. They barely they barely got off. So they're in the air at this point. The plane was climbing to 7,000 feet when the first officer commented the plane would not pressurize. Oh, shoot. The captain asked him to locate the procedures for a tail strike, and after looking through the documents, the first officer said he couldn't find them. The captain contacted air traffic control and declared PAN. And like we've said before, PAN is an emergency that's less than a mayday. So Pan is like, something's wrong, there's an emergency, but it's not like Mayday, we're immediately crashing. Mm -hmm. Since this was an international flight, there were two other relief pilots, and they were both in the cockpit during the takeoff. The four pilots discussed what would be an appropriate landing weight, and they agreed at 280 tons. I don't know if you ever think about that, planes are heavy. Yeah. I mean, they have a lot of stuff on them. 280 tons is 560,000 pounds. So that's a, they have a lot of weight that they're working with. (laughs) So... Even though this weight is above the maximum landing weight, they wanted a buffer in case they would have to make several approaches. The flight had to hold for a little while uh, and dump some fuel, you know, just to try to get rid of some weight. And once that was done, they began a descent from 7,000 feet to 5,000 feet. And when they were passing through 6,500 feet, they heard an unusual rumbling sound. Oh, no. The senior flight attendant then contacted the flight crew and said he could see and smell smoke in the rear cabin. Oh. The first officer informed air traffic control about the smoke, and they were cleared for an immediate approach for runway 34. At 11.36, the plane landed at Melbourne and came to a stop at the end of runway 34. Uh The crew prepared for an evacuation while the fire and rescue team looked for signs of smoke and fire. And actually, they were not able to find any smoke or fire. So the plane was cleared to taxi to the terminal, where the passengers disembarked. And again, there were no fatalities or injuries on this flight. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah, so... Uh, another one that uh, that ends up with uh, with everyone being okay. No one, I should say, with no one dying. Mm-hmm. So now that um, I, I'm going to, de- we're actually obviously we're going to dig into this a little more. But now that I've given you kind of the overview for this incident, we talked about the other one. I feel like I'm compelled to mention that as of the time we're recording this, 
the Airbus A340 has never been involved in a fatal incident. Oh. That's great. Great, super great um, safety record for that plane. I mean, you say you've never seen one before, but they're still used regularly. I mean, it's not like a rare plane, right? It's mostly rare in the United States. Uh, yeah. it's, it's flown by a lot of other carriers in other countries, uh, but I don't think there's a single operator in the United States who, uh, who flies it. Yeah. I think uh, currently the airlines that use it the most, I think it's Lufthansa actually who uses uh, the most A340 still currently. There's a whole other, I mean, that's a whole other podcast to talk about the <laughs> economics of, of flights and why the A340 is not popular in the United States, but is popular in other countries. And I mean, that's a whole other thing. That's not the focus of this podcast. Maybe we can do another one. Maybe a bonus episode on it. Some point. Uh, maybe, maybe. Okay. <laughs> <The> bonus podcast. <laughs> but let's, t- let's talk about airline economics. <laughs> let's make this niche podcast even more niche. <laughs> so the investigation was conducted by the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau and Right off the bat, they discovered the plane's takeoff calculations were incorrect. The first officer had looked at the flight management and guidance system to find the weight of the aircraft, and uh-huh. he saw that it was 361.9 tons. Uh, and he added a ton to the weight to account for any last-minute changes, but when he put the number into the computer to calculate the takeoff performance, he entered 262.9 instead of 362.9. Oh, just a typo. A typo. The calculations were 100 tons off, which is why they thought they were going fast enough to take off, but they weren't. The wrong number was entered in the computer and the performance parameters were entered in the flight systems and added to the master flight plan. And a simple typo, a simple wrong number caused confusion between the captain and the first officer. And the captain double-checked the computer calculations, but while he was checking, there were other things going on in the cockpit in the Ford galley that distracted him. The captain was then supposed to verbally check with the first officer to compare the takeoff calculations, but it just didn't happen. Instead, the captain cross-checked the numbers himself and gave the laptop back to the first officer. So is that standard just for both of them to do the calculations and compare? Right, just to make sure that there's, there's no errors that to prevent this kind of thing. But they didn't actually. They just each did their own individual work. First officer made a typo. Captain didn't notice because he was distracted and they didn't verify with each other. Oh, so wait, they were both going off of different information or both using the same wrong one? So the first officer did it first, typoed it, and then the captain looked it over doing his calculations, but then didn't notice that there was something wrong with it. Okay. So they both then completed the load sheet confirmation procedure, which included reading off the weight, and the first officer read 362.9 tons off of his sheet, and the captain didn't notice it went against what was in the computer. So at this point, they should have caught it. The first officer read the correct number, and the captain didn't notice that the computer had the wrong number in it. Mm. It's also noted that they said that they didn't have a procedure for the tail strike in their documents, but the first officer actually just couldn't find it. Uh, the procedure was to stay below 10,000 feet, which they did. So they did the right thing. They just couldn't find what the procedure was in their documents. Okay. The ATSB looked to see if fatigue played a factor in the accident, but both pilots had a layover greater than 36 hours before the flight, and both reported they had sufficient rest and didn't feel fatigued. So that doesn't seem like it was an issue. Yeah. And uh, on, this, on the cockpit voice recorder, there was no yawning or anything else that indicated fatigue. So the ATSB considers fatigue to be an unlikely cause of the accident. So there was no formal probable cause statement for this flight, uh, but they had some contributing factors that they, uh, they'd listed in their report. The first officer inadvertently entered the incorrect takeoff weight into the electronic flight bag to calculate takeoff performance parameters for the flight. That's the big obvious one. There's a mistake. Yeah. Uh, the captain was distracted while checking the takeoff performance figures in the electronic flight bag, which resulted in him not detecting the incorrect takeoff weight. During the pre-departure phase, the flight crew did not complete all of the tasks in their standard operating procedures, which contributed to them not detecting the error. 
when you say they didn't do, what did they not do? They didn't do their double check where they compared okay. the numbers with each other. When conducting the load sheet confirmation procedure, the first officer called out 362.9 tons as the takeoff weight rather than 262.9 that was recorded on the master flight plan, which removed an opportunity for the captain to detect the error. So again, mm. they're just not noticing that there's an error in their, in their numbers. The flight crew's mixed fleet flying routinely exposed them to large variations in takeoff weights and performance parameters, which adversely influenced their ability to form an expectation of the reasonableness of the calculated takeoff performance parameters. So they just flew a variety of different planes with a variety of different takeoff weights and performance parameters. So they didn't notice. If they flew this plane exclusively, they might have noticed like, hey, these numbers seem a little weird, right? Yeah. But, you know, yeah, they fly different planes, so it didn't necessarily stick out to them. Yeah, it was just too many. Too, it was too very too much day-to-day to just right. be weird. Exactly. The operator's training and processes in place to enable flight crew to manage distractions during the pre-departure phase did not minimize the effect of distraction during safety-critical tasks. So like I mentioned, there was stuff going on. The captain was distracted while they were getting ready for takeoff. What was going on? I, I mean, they were just getting people on the plane. It doesn't specifically say... But, you know, it's a busy time when people are getting on the plane and getting ready for yeah. takeoff. Just the, the normal busy brightness. Right. Yeah. Nothing out of the ordinary. The rotation maneuver commenced at an airspeed that was too low to permit the aircraft to become airborne, but sufficient to overpitch the aircraft, resulting in the tail strike. So they tried to take off, but they were too slow to get off the ground, but they were going fast enough to make a tail strike. Mm. The flight crew did not detect the reduced acceleration until approaching the end of the runway due to limitations in human perception of acceleration, which was further degraded by reduced visual cues during a night takeoff. So just saying that, you know, humans, we're not good at detecting fast speeds. Like we think about like all yeah. of the evolution of mankind, we've only had to deal with fast speeds very recently and, you know, in maybe the last hundred years. Yeah. So like we're not, our eyes and our, our brains aren't equipped to necessarily uh, deal with things fast, that fast. And it can be so hard inside of a vehicle to tell how fast you're going. Especially in this case at night, you know, they can't see surrounding terrain. All they can see is the lights of the runway, basically. Yeah. The design of the flow of information from the electronic flight bag into the aircraft systems and flight documentation was complex, increasing the potential for error. So basically just getting the information into the aircraft systems was complicated. Okay. The captain's selection of the takeoff go-around thrust during the rotation maneuver very likely limited the adverse consequences of the runway overrun. So the captain did the right thing by, you know, hitting takeoff go-around to increase thrust and get them off the ground. Because if they hadn't gotten off the ground, you know, they would have gone off the end of the runway in a plane full of fuel and it would, this would have been a lot worse. Possibly into a ravine. Yeah, maybe into a ravine. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I've flown into the Melbourne airport before, but believe it or not, I was a passenger, so I didn't get to see out the front of the plane. <laughs> so I don't know what's at the end of that runway there. So uh, there were a few recommendations here. There were initial and recurrent training in relation to mixed fleet flying and human factors. So just, you know, some more training. If, if you have pilots like this who fly different kinds of planes, let's just reinforce some, uh, some training there. Mm-hmm. Introduce a performance calculation and verification system that will protect against single data source entry error by allowing at least two independent calculations. So again, let's just make some more redundancy in this calculation process. And this is what I was, I was trying to get at. Now they both enter in the calculations independently and compare? I'm not sure what the exact procedure is at this point now. Uh, I would imagine that that would be it or that they would both do their work and like not show it to each other yeah, until the end like, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like no cheating, you know, <laughs> do your own work and then, uh, and then share at the end. Uh, work with technology providers regarding the availability of systems for detecting abnormal takeoff performance. Education of support staff on flight crew distraction and adjustments to pre-departure procedures to reduce the opportunities for such distraction. This sounds to me like 
training everyone else not to distract the crew during pre-departure. That way, the cockpit crew can focus on uh, what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Development of a system to alert flight crews to abnormal takeoff performance at an early stage during their takeoff runs. So like we, you know, in our uh, last episode with Spanair, we talked about takeoff warning systems, probably an expansion of those kinds of systems to let the crew know, like an alarm of some kind, that there's something wrong with our takeoff performance. Mm-hmm. But, you know, luckily for everyone involved, Everyone was okay. Uh, this particular plane was actually repaired and continued to fly for many years. So, I mean, this, this was not a bad event. All things considered, everyone survived. Everyone was okay. Uh, even the plane was okay. <laughs> the plane went back yeah. to work. Uh, so th- this is one of those incidents where everyone learns a lot. Yeah, and it's reassuring, too, that it worked out okay, considering it was only just a typo that kind of... Not only a typo, but that, that was the, the impetus for it. Yeah, all this is because of uh, someone typed a two instead of a three. Jeez. So yeah, I remember when uh, when you're taking you know your math classes in elementary school and you think uh, this is stupid. Am I ever going to need this? <laughs> I guess, wait, it's not I even was, math. They did the yeah. math right. This is like <laughs> typing. Yeah, but like it's it's crazy too to think that if you were doing math, I mean that's NASA and everything. Like all the math that you normally you know in school. Oh man, I got a bad grade. But like in that kind of situation, it's like oh I, I missed my and now people's lives are in danger. It's a weird way to think about math. Yeah, it's not, and, and in this case, like, it's not only other people's lives, but it's your life also. Yeah. Like, you know, you need to be really sure about all of these things. Check your work. <laughs> yeah. I just looked it up, actually. The plane, this particular plane that was in this incident uh, continued to fly until October of 2014. So it flew for another five years after this before it was scrapped. So, I mean, that's it. Those are the two incidents we had about the Airbus A340s. There are a few others, of course. Like I said, there were a total of six hull losses for the A340. Mm-hmm. But I thought these were uh, the most interesting out of them. Uh, some yeah. of the other ones are kind of boring. Well, not boring, but it's like, it's, it's things that wouldn't be very compelling episodes. Like there was one that was destroyed by a fire while it was undergoing service. You know, uh, <laughs> it's like, what? that's not actually, yeah, that's not actually <laughs> a, uh, an incident. Like it was like, oh, it was, it was in it was in the shop and then there was an accident, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we can't. I don't really know as much about that. We can't really talk about that. But um, I, I have one question. So on the first one, the first plane crash, the Toronto one, it talked about how it only had enough fuel for like a 10 minute or whatever. 14 uh, minute window. Yeah. 14 minute window. There was no adjustment to that for the future so that they had a little big bigger of a window or? Uh, no, I mean, I they had enough. I think that that really wasn't too much of an issue. I think uh, okay. if they missed this landing they still had time to divert. It's not a big deal. And you reach a point, I think we talked about this early in the podcast, one of our first episodes, you reach a point where if you put more fuel in a plane, you're just carrying more fuel to burn more fuel. Like you're just adding weight unnecessarily. So it's like there's a very delicate balance between like putting just enough gas to get where you're going and divert versus putting too much and it's just burning fuel for no reason. So there's a delicate balance there. Uh, And I think that for the most part, that that works okay. The pilots did, did they get in, in trouble? I mean, specifically, it sounds like the first one was, I mean, was a bigger screw up. The first plane crash, did they get into any major trouble or, or or held accountable? So with the Air France pilots, they were still flying for Air France as of 2010. So I don't know if they necessarily got in trouble or what happened to them specifically, but they mm-hmm. did continue to fly uh, for Air France after this incident. Okay. I'm sure they were reprimanded in some way, but and the second mm-hmm. one just seems... Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem as, as as neglectful, I guess. And they responded correctly in the moment with everything. Mm-hmm. Like they mm-hmm. put the thrusters, they didn't go too high. They went, yeah. So, but actually, I will say 
after being interviewed, the two pilots for the Emirates flight returned to Dubai, and they were asked to resign from Emirates upon their oh. arrival in Dubai, and they actually both did. So they got in more trouble than the other pilots? Mm-hmm. Wow. They, yeah, they were asked to resign, and they did. Do they still fly just somewhere else, or you may not know? Uh, yeah, I don't know for certain. Uh, it's hard to say. Yeah. But uh, that's it. I, I will, like I uh, said at the top of the show, uh, you should follow us on social media because I'll post some images of both of these flights and the aftermath. Well, Ember's Flight 407, maybe not so much, but I will post the uh, aftermath images of Air France 358. And uh, it's it's crazy to see the extent of the damage to that plane. And just to the plane itself, like we were talking about how it's a big plane, but doesn't look as big as you think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll post some A340 photos as well. I think it's a, I think it's a cool plane. So I feel like it's been a little while since uh, uh-huh. since we've done this, Chris, but I feel like we should ask people to uh, recommend this podcast to a friend. Yeah, and uh, maybe a friend who speaks French or is in French class. Okay, for in, or or someone who speaks with an Australian accent in honor of yeah. our uh, our two countries. Uh, yeah. Well I, well, I guess Canada as well, but they speak French in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Or a Canadian. Or just someone who's really good at doing an accent in Aust- an Australian accent. Yeah. We'll make it easy. You get a wide range of recommendations. Basically, just recommend us to someone, please. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we're asking. Uh, But all right, that's it. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you guys again next time. Bye.